Hi everybody, I'm Katie. And I'm Rhiannon. And welcome to Haunting Cases. my squeaky chair over here <laughs> is there a way to get the countdown to turn off like <laughs> i guess that's what our banter is going to be about today considering i've never had this happen to me when recording an episode but now it's giving me a countdown like i'm a news broadcaster or some shit <laughs> maybe sound traps had a, a fancy update Fucking guess so. I mean, there are sparkles next to our stuff now. Ooh, There's some sparkles up here. This project saves. I wasn't done reading that. This project <laughs> saves and sinks automatically. Lovely. That's that's fun. That's nice. That's, that's nice. That's okay. Picasso. I like it. I can dig it. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I, I dig the sparkles. I could always use some more sparkles in my life. Right. <laughs> I always need more sparkles in my life. Just, like, give me, like, a thing. Actually, no. No, because I fucking hate glitter. And, I'm like, as immediately was like, give me some glitter. And my brain's like, no. Absolutely not. You can't handle glitter. And we know this. D- do you just not like how it follows you everywhere? Yeah. You can just never I absolutely escape the hate glitter. It. It's like when I... <laughs> When I used to use it for, like, arts and crafts, I'm like, yeah, it looks so cute. And then, like, later in the night, I'm, like, taking my contacts out. I'm like, why is that glitter in my eyeballs? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I remember back in, I think it was middle school, we used to make jokes about, like, let's see how long it takes them to clean the bathroom. Because we'd wear, like, a really glittery shirt in the bathroom and we'd leave glitter everywhere. And then you'd see how long before the glitter goes away. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I remember they gave us creative freedom with one of our tops for a musical. I think it was Godspell. And one of the girls came in and she had glittered her name onto the back of the shirt. I was like, creative, but I also kind of hate you now. Because this is going to get (laughs) everywhere. There's going to be glitter in my stuff. There's going to be glitter backstage for ages, okay? And I was right. There was glitter it's backstage true. for ages. It was there for like two years. It was insane. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. I don't recall us using a lot of glitter with our theater stuff probably for that exact reason. I do remember, though, that for one of our shows, I had like some glittery, what was it? It was eye makeup. I'm trying to remember if it was the eyeshadow. I think it was the eyeshadow that was glittery. I don't recall that. Making a mess, but probably because it's sticky and it sticks to you. It's not like glitter that just falls off of everything. Mm-hmm. But that's really the only glitter I can remember from my, my theta days, probably because we don't want glitter everywhere. <laughs> well, it's like, I've had that conversation with friends before. They're like, oh, you hate glitter, but you love makeup. I'm like, I like shimmer makeup. If there's glitter <laughs> makeup in my palette, I purposely go above and beyond to never touch that thing (laughs) like i could tell you right now if i were to run over to my bathroom grab one of my makeup palettes there's at least three 
glitter ones that I have that have not been touched because I'm like, Mm-mm, screw that. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know if it's the fact that I hate how glitter gets everywhere or if it's the trauma that I endured in like the early days of like middle school and high school, you know, when you were first starting makeup. And I think it was um, Ulta that came out with like the glitter eyeliner. Ooh. It was cute. It was cute. Except if your brush just got a little wet, like if your eyes were watering or something, that shit would go in your eye. And then you oh, sat there and no. did like the scream oh. to the heavens silently in the bathroom because your parents are still asleep and you don't want to wake them up. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, mom, dad, if you're listening, if you ever heard the <laughs> coming from the bathroom, like a pterodactyl, a very quiet pterodactyl, that was me and I had glitter in my eye. Or just <laughs> eyeliner in general, because liquid eyeliner was a bitch. <laughs> and we all hated her. <laughs> I thankfully never had the glitter eye makeup experience. At least not that particular glitter eye makeup experience. Dude, I found a bottle when I was moving to Glendale, and I was like, nope, fuck this. And I, like, threw it out immediately. I'm like, I'll see it at the stores. I'm like, God help the poor soul that goes, oh, this is cute. And, like, gets it in her eye the first time around. Or their eye the first time around. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because I know damn good and well that's happened since my age, my generation, my time, back when I was a kid. <laughs> uh, oh, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. But no, I hate glitter. That is our banter for today. I hate glitter. <laughs> Don't send that, me glitter. That is the lesson of today's banter. <laughs> We're not a huge fan of glitter. <laughs> Well, I don't want to drag on for too long just because we do have a lot to cover today. We are continuing from part one of the West Mesa Bone Collector and into part two today. And stay tuned. Here come your trigger warnings. While we understand that some individuals listen for the entertainment aspect of true crime, it's important to remember that these are real people with families and friends who may still be suffering from their loss. These stories are not meant to open old wounds or cause further emotional damage to those involved. We remind you to please be respectful, do not dox, or contact those involved with cases. While paranormal occurrences and urban legends may be sources of tourism, please be considerate if you visit one of these locations. Do not engage in trespassing and be sure to ask for permission if you plan on recording. Be aware of your surroundings and travel safely. The cases discussed in this podcast may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. episode, we will be discussing cases involving more than one of the following. Children, sexual assault, domestic violence, and suicide. As always, listener discretion is advised. If you or someone you know has a child who has been victimized, 
please call the proper authorities and look at missingkids.org or call the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's hotline at 800-843-5678 for more helpful resources. If you or someone you know has been a victim of sexual assault, please reach out to the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800-656-4673. If you or someone you know has been a victim of domestic violence, please reach out to the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 800-799-7233. And if you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts or ideation, please reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, listeners, from the Tigger Warnings. From all the Tigger Warnings. You get them all All today. (laughs) All the different Tiggers. Actually, I think you only get like two out of there, but you know, catch all is a catch all. (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted to make sure that I had all my bases covered in case I missed something. (laughs) (laughs) But last we left off was in about 2005. Ida has a list of over 20 women and it's growing. She has to look realistically at these cases and although she hopes it's not the case it's likely that these girls are no longer alive and she requests dna swabs dental records and other medical records sent to her for possible identification in the future now in addition to this ida is going out and walking the war zone she's talking to any of the girls that she can find who are obviously nervous that there's an officer trying to talk to them But she's like, hey, you're not under arrest. I'm just looking for answers on where these other girls are. And Ida is also distributing pictures of the girls anywhere she can think of. Fast food restaurants, truck stops, and even at the New Mexico State Fair. Which, from what I found, is somewhere that's highly trafficked by sex workers, drug dealers, and a couple other of the more infamous crime groups out there. Oh, wow. So this is literally taking up all of her time in the office and out of the office. And this was, if I remember correctly, she's supposed to be only working part time, right? She's only working like 20 hours a week. So like she's literally going above and beyond to help find these women. She's taking time out of her own schedule to go and do this. Seriously, yeah, because I was thinking 20 hours a week isn't a lot of time to be doing all that she's doing. So she is really committed to the cause and is not just doing it for a paycheck. Oh, absolutely. And she's actually got girls that have been missing so long that she starts comparing notes with a cold case detective in the police department as well. And the two of them actually have to persuade higher ups for them to be allowed to form like a small task force. Wow. So one month in, Ida and this cold case detective are meeting up with agencies and other law enforcement professionals, such as like the FBI, to discuss possible leads as to the missing girls and other cases that are very similar to them. 
unidentified remains, and known sexual predators that might be lurking throughout the area. So, as time goes on, Ida's list is still growing, but fortunately, she is able to prune some names as she goes. However, she feels that those who are still left on her list will ultimately be found together, and she can't really explain where this like theory is coming from. It's just a gut feeling that she has going. Ugh. She also finds out that the last time Cinnamon was seen by her friends, she stated that girls were getting their heads chopped off and buried in the West Mesa, and Cinnamon seemed afraid. Oh my god. So now it seems like there's been at least a couple different comments about girls getting killed and, and buried in the in the Mesa, which that's got those rumors have gotta be coming from somewhere. There's gotta be some hit of truth for these rumors to be springing up. Yeah, absolutely. And this is just coming from the people that will talk to her. There's other individuals that are absolutely like, no, I'm not gonna talk to you. You're law enforcement, like you're gonna arrest exactly, me. Exactly. Yeah. Like how many other women out there that are in the same position of their drug addicts and their sex workers and they simply don't want to get in trouble for their antics or just like, I don't want to talk to you and keeping information that's very detrimental to a case under wraps. Oh yeah. I feel like, especially if they feel like they have a poor relationship with law enforcement, they're not going to, probably feel comfortable being completely open and having these conversations, which is really unfortunate when it comes to trying to investigate all these different missing women and find out what happened to them. If some of the other folks on the street who might have a clue of what happened aren't willing to speak up. And I mean, I can't blame them considering, like you said, with their lifestyle, I'm sure they get arrested frequently or at least have to constantly worry about getting arrested so i'm sure being approached by a law enforcement officer is not what they want to see any day yeah and even when i was in school and we talked about research methods and like actually talking to people that might be involved with crime or like bigger groups out there it's important to like bring up the topic that they're not being arrested like this is purely for investigative purposes or research purposes And even then, like, both sides of that spectrum, like, the law enforcement that might be, like, asking questions of these people and the people that are answering questions are nervous. So it's a very messy area to be in, and it's hard to get straightforward answers. Now... Like we've discussed previously, the West Mesa, that's the area where people basically dump their trash that they no longer want. And in addition, it's huge. It's enormous, too big to even start searching based off of a rumor. So it's going to take a miracle to find anything out there. In February of 2009, Christine Ross and her dog Ruka left their home on Albuquerque's west side and went for a walk along a dried out wash. When she let Ruka off the leash to run a little bit, the dog became really entranced with something on the ground, but ultimately left it and came running back to mom. Hmm. When the two walked up on what Ruka seemed so entranced with, it's a bone protruding out of the ground. 
and it, oh. it didn't look like any normal animal bone. Oh, no. <laughs> it's like the worst nightmare taking my dog out for a hike. Oh, my God. My dog has unburied a body. <laughs> no. So Christine takes a picture and she sends it to her sister, who's a registered nurse. A little while later, Christine's sister contacts her, telling her that the bone resembles a human femur and she needs to notify authorities. Now, initially, authorities don't seem too worried about it as the area that this bone is found in is known to be home to many ancient remains for Native Americans and, like, cowboys traveling through that area. Oh, okay. Similar to, like, what we see over here. Like, there's a lot of archaeological digs around where I live now, where we both yeah, used to live. Yeah, yeah. Because there is so much heavy traffic of old Native American tribes, as well as people, like, migrating during the Great Dust Bowl and things like that. Now, when authorities do arrive on the scene, they were able to determine that the bone was, in fact, a human femur. But these aren't ancient remains. And... This is done through a method of sending photos to the medical examiner's office, where typically you'll have a forensic anthropologist determine if the bones are human or non-human. How would you be able to age bones? Is it just by, like, looking at them? So, or? off the top of my head, if I remember this correctly, and there might be a corrections corner next week, ancient bones have a different colorization to them than more like recent bones so you might see more yellowing okay. more browning to an ancient bone like it's been there a while it's decaying it's losing yeah. that like white calcium buildup that you would usually see off of like a fresher bone okay so there's ways to determine also the brittleness of the bone like there's a whole list that you go through with determining ancient and non-ancient remains oh okay so Authorities at the scene did a further examination of the area where the femur was collected, and they found a right clavicle, and then another right clavicle. Uh. So now it's becoming obvious that there's more than one body in this area. So in order to get an idea of how many victims there could be here, police take a look into the past regarding missing persons in Albuquerque, New Mexico, near the West Mesa area. Additionally, they start going back and looking through satellite pictures of the years prior to the housing development going up where Christine and her dog were living at. And they start noticing something that still absolutely shocks me to my core to this day. And Re, I can't be the only one that's seen this. So if you will, there's a PowerPoint in our shared Google Docs. Please go open that for me. I'm a little frightened by your comment of I can't be the only one seeing this. <laughs> Something too bad. But it is kind of bone chilling once you start realizing what's going on. So... On that first slide, you're going to see kind of a diagram of what's going on. 
you're going to see that there's a couple housing developments in this area, and then, like, there's the title for the West Mesa burial site, and there's roads and housing everywhere. Okay. Mm-hmm. So yeah. going into the next slide, it's a little blurry. I'm sorry. I tried to get pic- better pictures, but that's really hard to do. So in this photo off to the right, it looks like there might be like a little access road over there, but you're seeing like yeah. this like trail coming up over this ridge with like trees next to it. And then just below that is like a wash bed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this was taken in 2002. And if you go to the next one, this is satellite footage taken in 2004. Now, that little axis road that you see off to the right, look just about the middle portion of the screen where this is at, and you're going to see that there's some scarring on the desert floor, and those are tire tracks. Yeah, I was just flipping back and forth between the two photos to compare them, and you can definitely see... um, the tire trucks for mm-hmm. sure definitely looks like because uh, I've looked at satellite imagery before for some of my work and you can definitely see areas where people have kind of gone into areas like off-roaded into areas repeatedly mm-hmm. where it starts making almost a dirt road because they've just repeatedly you know disturbed the ground by driving over it yeah and that's definitely what that looks like and then off to like the mid left where like that red line ends you can see that there's like yeah. a bigger area out there that's scarred yeah let's see Oh, yeah, I see what you're talking about. Yep. Okay. And then if you go to satellite photos taken from 2005, there's two black arrows that were drawn here. And thanks to Prime Junkie, that's where I got this photo from. You see that there's one area that's heavily scarred, and then there's another area that's heavily scarred. And these tire tracks look really fresh, like somebody was just there. Ugh. And then in 2005, again, you can see this area has started to undergo construction. And while it's still apparent that there might be some tire tracks around there, it's not fully apparent whose they are because there's also construction workers going over this area. But yeah, it's it's something. So were some buildings built over the site by the time they're doing this investigation? Like, is some of this area already constructed by the time they're investigating? Some of the area was constructed. However, this whole area where the West Mesa burial is, like that diagram that I showed you on that first slide, is basically left untouched. But there is some housing developments around the area that have taken over the West Mesa. Okay. So... As they're going back through these satellite photos, as we said, you can start notice that there's a break off in the road and there's this tire tracking that's been like dug into the dried riverbed creek. And you can start seeing scars on the desert floor. Now, the desert floor is very unique and Rhi could probably tell you more about this than I can. <laughs> but when somebody scars it or <laughs> starts turning up soil for burying something it takes years for the actual like vegetation and environment to resettle and reclaim oh yeah yeah that's um that's a really interesting thing about soils is most people just think like oh it's dirt and you don't really think a whole lot lot more about it usually uh but there is a whole science behind soils i mean there are scientists that that's what they do with soils 
and I've only taken one soil science class, so I mean, I'm not an expert by any means, but uh, for sure, you can definitely tell, if you know what to look for, you can tell if an area has been disturbed, because um, especially like for some of the work I've done before, we'll do soil surveys where you actually dig deep into the ground and then you can look and find all the different layers because, uh, over time you'll get, um, depending on what's going on around, I mean, we're talking long, long time span, uh, you'll get different soil layers forming depending on if, you know, maybe there's a river there at some point and then it dried up. And so then you start to get these different layers of different types of soil forming over years and years and years and years and years and years. And, years. and so now going back and digging what we call a soil soil pits of, oh gosh it's been a while <laughs> soil pits of very correctly um you can actually see all the layers and that's how they categorize different kinds of soils that is uh based on what kind of layers you're seeing but then like katie was saying if you go in and you're burying something or even if you're turning it over for agriculture any case where you're disturbing that soil you're going to lose those nice layers and you're going to mix them up and so then if somebody were to go and dig a pit there to look at for those nice layers and try to define what kind of soil it is there. Um, if you compared that to the surrounding area, uh, I'm simplifying it, but basically you should see that it's been disturbed. It, it doesn't have those nice layers anymore. It's been mixed up. So even if like a year has passed, two years has passed, probably even longer than that. I mean, it, it's a, it takes a long time for these layers to form. And once you disturb it, I mean, those layers aren't going to form again, um, since that's basically digging into the earth. You're basically, uh, um, I guess you could say, going back in time, looking at these layers of soil that have formed over the years. So, I mean, you, you don't get that back once it's disturbed. Uh, so that's definitely, if you're in something like this or you're looking for a disturbance, you want to see, did somebody bury something there? That's definitely uh, a factor you could consider. Absolutely. And we'll go a little bit more into that in a moment but the real question that's coming forth is in this area that there's scarring on the ground are these possible locations for other buried victims so we're going to take a moment though and we're going to talk about the perfect storm and literally i could not tell you anymore it is literally the perfect storm so <laughs> The housing boom of 2005 was something that brought a lot of those neighborhoods that you see in the West Mesa to that area. And with the crashing of the financial market in late 2005, the construction around the area had halted completely, with many of the workers leaving the area entirely. This area had previously been cleared out and was ready to like have buildings put upon it when this happened. So... Fast forward a couple of years, in August of 2008, there was a set of really bad rainstorms that flooded the new neighborhoods around the construction site. When the company returned to fix the runoff from the site, they inadvertently brought some of these bones to the surface. Ugh. The bones that five months later, Christine and Ruka would find along their routine morning walk. Oh my gosh, seriously. 
Yeah, you're right, because if any of those factors had gone differently, like, this may not have been found. It may not have been discovered. Because if you think about it, if their soil is the same way that ours is over in Arizona, they don't build basements. They just lay down concrete and foundation. If that were to have happened, these remains would have never been found. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and... I was thinking, too, even if uh, it had been a situation of just they cleared the ground and there had been a rain, I mean, because I imagine that he or whoever this was buried the bones fairly deep because they didn't want them being discovered. So if the land hadn't been cleared for construction or if they hadn't had a really good rain to have all that runoff and whatnot... And then the construction crew coming back in and trying to fix it. It's just, I feel like if you removed a piece of the puzzle, it just wouldn't have worked out quite that way. You needed all those different factors to lead to this discovery. And that's shocking since we know in the real world that doesn't normally happen that way. Oh yeah, absolutely. So Albuquerque Police Department launches a full-scale excavation of the area covering the equivalents of 75 football fields. Wow. And unfortunately, because the construction team had filled the area where that shallow creek bed would have been, the team had to dig upwards to 20 feet deep to locate some of the once shallow graves. Holy shit. I hope they had some good equipment because, like I said, doing work with soils before digging soil pits, those desert soils tend to be very hard or have a very hard calcic layer in them and it is a pain to get through that mm-hmm. with hand tools so i really hope they had some like hardcore machinery to help them with that so this case remains one of the largest excavations in united states history as well as one of america's largest crime scenes Ooh. Now, unfortunately, as this excavation is underway, more media coverage throughout the United States starts to show up. And with each coverage of the case, tips and questions start pouring in from all over the world with people asking about missing female family members. Chief Ray Schultz does mention at this time how the amount of calls that came into the police department regarding missing women really put it into perspective of how many women and what a large amount of them go missing around the world. Wow. Yeah. I'm a little surprised. My first thought was that I would normally think, you know, if these women are buried here in New Mexico, my assumption then would be the victims here were women who were in New Mexico, mm-hmm. like not from elsewhere, just because I imagine it's difficult to transport a body at long distances when you don't want people finding out. Oh, um, absolutely. But, uh, but so it, it surprises me that people from outside of New Mexico were calling in about it. But then at the same time, that thought of like we've discussed before, when you have a missing family member, just not knowing what happened i mean any oh, chance you get any opportunity to try to get that answer you have to take it i'm sure and it's not just outside of new mexico either it's outside of the country like these are people yeah. that are calling about their family members that ultimately came here to have a better life or possibly escape something oh, else gosh. going on in their own country and they've just vanished or dropped off the face of the earth they're no longer talking to their loved ones and these people don't know what's going on 
Wow. Oh my gosh. Now, with the media present and actively at the scene, the remains needed to be recovered in a way that provided them the most dignity to the victims. Police ultimately wanted to keep the public informed, but also keep sensitive information out of the media and away from people who would become cranks and basically copycats for the murders, because that does happen. Many of the excavations were scheduled during the night due to this. Additionally, many of these people who were doing the work were police officers and not archaeologists or anthropologists. As far as I could find, there were maybe like one to two archaeologists or anthropologists on the scene for this, basically kind of guiding you around it. But that was from future articles based in like universities, which from what I could distinguish said that there were a couple there, but it's like, how many more do you need? And it's a very lacking field, especially in 2005. Oh, yeah. So... I mean, this obviously was an exception to the usual case with the amount of land they were excavating. But do you know if that's normal, that if you are excavating, searching for remains in a criminal investigation, that it would be the the police doing the work, that they wouldn't have somebody else come in and do that? So technically, if you have to excavate remains, it should be the work of a forensic anthropologist or a forensic archaeologist. They both fall into that similar category. A forensic archaeologist is typically, like, an individual that's majored in archaeology and forensic science, whereas an anthropologist has more of the medical examiner background to it, but isn't a medical legal doctor. Yes. Okay. So officers recall using a backhoe to dig most of this dirt up, and during one of these times where the backhoe dug into the soil as it's lifting it up, the dirt begins to roll out, and so does a skull, which literally rolls to the base of one of like the supervisor's feet and it served as a lesson that they need to tread carefully when it came to excavating this site now before y'all freak out it isn't fully customary to use backhoes for digging up clandestine graves typically it's done with shovels handheld tools and other things that ensure that nothing is forensically destroyed This is not the first time, though, I've heard of a backhoe being used to dig up a clandestine site, though. I heard about it being used in a mass grave over in Germany for a Jewish clandestine grave out in a field. Mm. There were many rumors that they had to kind of follow up on first to make sure that that was the spot that they needed to dig. And like you said previously, with the mixing of soils, those don't go back to normal. So basically, when it comes to using a backhoe or any heavy machinery to do the digging, it's very carefully used to kind of like scrape the ground and pick up a little bit of dirt at a time, but not go Mm. like completely crazy with it. Yeah. Mainly what you're looking for is that mixture of soils starting to happen. And once you get to an area where it seems like that might be stopping or it might be more heavily mixed that's when you have to start bringing out the shovels and the handheld tools and kind of being very, very careful with how much you are moving. Yeah, I didn't think about that, that in the ca- in this case, uh, when trying to excavate remains, that heavy machinery, of course, could damage those remains and destroy them. So, wow. Yeah, that's got to be 
really intense work trying to very carefully dig out something that you're not entirely sure where it is, but still trying not to damage it in the process oh, and be respectful. And there are many different ways to find a clandestine grave. Like there's gas meters that like you could poke into the ground and it'll send up like indications of if there's decomposition gases built up in a location. However, mm. these bones have obviously been sitting there for some time. And if they're comparing against Ida's list, it's likely that these remains are skeletonized and they're not going to have that like decomp gas around them anymore. Most of that's going to have like dissipated by now. Yeah. So in addition to using basic tools like the backhoes and shovels, officers were also using ground penetrating radar. Now, ground penetrating radar is the use of an electromagnetic wave propagation and scattering to image, locate, and like quantify changes in soil. Wow, they're bringing out the, the big tech. <laughs> it kind of lets you see what's going on down below without digging. First. Yeah, I, I'm sure that helped a lot since. Like we were saying, you know, it helps to know what you're looking for and where it is. Yeah. So I'm sure that played a, a big factor and was a, a very good tool in trying to prevent accidentally destroying remains while trying to excavate them. Absolutely. But I'm presuming that they used this once they were able to narrow down a space because, once again, the West Mesa is huge and ground penetrating radar is tedious to say the least. And it's not helping that a nation is literally watching every single move that's being made on this scene. Yeah, and especially with a, a large outdoor area like that, I'm sure it's difficult to secure the area and prevent onlookers. Mm -hmm. It's not like you can put like a huge tarp up around it all the time. Like You've yeah. really got to be mindful of, oh, are there cameras running just beyond my shoulder or... Is somebody watching as I'm pulling these remains out? Like, it's literally taking everything that you have just to give these people dignity and not, like, expose these remains. Yeah. So, in mid-April of 2009, after months of searching and hundreds of times going through and hand-sifting through just sand and dirt at the West Mesa crime scene... It was confidently released and public could once again walk through the area. Now, from what I read, it sounded like they retrieved at least 90% of the bones that were in that area. And this search yielded a total body count of 11 women and one fetus. Wow. The first body to be identified was Victoria Chavez. She was the first victim to be found as well, and she was found by Ruka. Mm. The second body to be identified was Michelle Valdez. She was the eighth victim found in the West Mesa, and the remains of her unborn child were found next to her. This baby became the ninth victim in some reports, and it was determined that the fetus was approximately four months like along in the pregnancy when they died. Wow. The third body to be identified was Cinnamon Elks. She was the 12th victim pulled from the West Mesa. And she was quickly identified as the oldest victim 
of this killer. Mm. She was identified sometime in early 2009 as well. The fourth body to be identified was that of Julianne Naito, and she was found in an area the officers started referring to as the pit. She was presumably identified sometime in February of 2009 as well. The fifth body was identified as Veronica Romero. She was the seventh victim to be found in the West Mesa. Her identification was announced to the world on April 2nd, 2009, two months after the first set of remains were found. Wow. The sixth body to be identified was Monica Candelaria. And from what I could find, she was identified sometime around April 2nd as well. The seventh body to be identified was Doreen Marquez, and she was identified sometime in April as well. The eighth body identified was a girl that didn't even make Detective Ida's list. Additionally, oh, wow. she didn't match the killer's profile. That's strange. She was slightly younger than most of the other victims, and her age was about 15 years old. She belonged oh, wow. to an entire different racial group. She was African-American, and her identification was done using forensic sketch work as well as dental records. We're going to pause on this list here, and we're going to talk a little bit about Selenia Edwards. She was 15 years old when she disappeared. She never knew her father, and the last she saw her mother, she was five years old. According to a missing persons report, which was filed in Lawton, Oklahoma, in August oh, wow. of 2003, Selenia had run away from a girls' group called Parker Point in Lawton. The home was geared towards young girls who are victims of neglect and other forms of abuse. And from what I could find, it's basically like a group foster home for girls. Wow. In May of 2004, Selenia had been seen associating with sex workers on East Colfax Avenue in Aurora, Colorado. She had been staying at the Ranger Motel and was in the company of three other women going by the names of Lucirta, Ty, and Diamond. I apologize if I mispronounced any of those. Selenia may have also been using nicknames like Mimi or Chocolate during her stay there. Selenia is also believed to possibly be a circuit girl, which at her age is a form of sex trafficking where the girl is passed around by a lot of different individuals to gain money for themselves or others. This could have possibly been how she ended up in New Mexico or in the hands of this killer. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I was wondering how she got to New Mexico specifically if the killer like visited Colorado and kidnapped her and brought her back or if she made it to New Mexico through another route and then just by coincidence ended up in the hands of the killer. Yeah, and from what I heard on other podcasts, it sounds like her family might have visited New Mexico like once or twice when she was younger. But ultimately, it's theorized that she may have been sex trafficked into the area. Okay. So, Selenia would be given her name back just days before the ninth and tenth victims would. The ninth victim was identified as Virginia Cloven, and she was identified in fall of 2009. The tenth victim was identified as 
Evelyn Salazar in November of 2009, and Evelyn's cousin, Jamie Barella, was the last body to be identified on January 26th of 2010, almost a year after the first set of remains were found in the West Mesa. And she was only able to be identified through extensive DNA testing, which required months of back and forth work between police and experts at the University of Northern Texas. Wow. I'm glad they were able to identify all of the remains and give them back their identities and hopefully contact family and let them know um, that so that they finally had an answer, but that is horrifying that there were that many women and that young girl as well that uh, were struck by this killer. Mm-hmm. An official task force was named after the street where the West Mason murders took place, the 100th and 18th Street Task Force. And a press release was held where they disclosed that investigators believe that one individual was responsible for the deaths of all 11 women in the one unborn fetus. At the time, Ray Schultz notes that they were very confident that they would find the killer. However, as weeks turned into months of processing a gravesite, there isn't much to go on. Within the West Mesa crime scene, there are only two additional items that were recovered as evidence, at least two that officers are willing to disclose. The first item is a acrylic nail, which is believed to belong to one of the victims. The second piece of evidence was a tag that belonged to a local landscaping agency. Hmm. And upon further investigation of this business's clientele, and a list of known offenders in the area, there's an immediate hit. Oh. Just after a week of finding the bones in the West Mesa, police began to focus on one Joseph Blea, a potential suspect. April Gillen, Blea's former wife, contacted police seven days after the discovery of a bone in the West Mesa and said that police should look into him. At this time, police already knew a lot about him, and with that tag being in their possession now, they had all the reason to kind of look into this guy. Officers had run across him previously nearly 140 times between the years of 1990 and 2009. I I do want to make a quick side note of I'm wondering if this was an angry ex trying to get back at her ex-husband or like did, now that you mentioned the criminal record though that, that was my other question is, or did she know basically he was involved in some criminal activity and it sounds like that may be more the case yeah well from what I could find it sounds like Blea actually went and dumped a lot of stuff in the West Mesa like I said it was an area where people went and like dumped their trash And he was one of those individuals. So she was like, hey, he's been over there. Like, you might want to check it out. So, like I said, officers had run across him nearly 140 times between 1990 and 2009. Just one more time for good satisfaction. 140 times. 
Yeah, I was trying to quickly do the math in my head because that's almost 20 years, and we're talking what 140 times divided mm-hmm. by 20. So what, like, if you assuming we were doing the same number a year, that's almost that's about seven times a year that he's had encounters with law enforcement, and that, that's assuming it's averaged out. I mean, there could be some years that were way more than others. Yeah, I'm like, oh, that's not good. So some of these encounters took place on East Central's corridor, or as we know it, the war zone. Mm. In one police report, six years before the West Mesa victims began to disappear, a woman had been walking on Central Avenue when Blea called her over to his car and exposed himself. Police later found a rope and electrical tape on his front seat. Oh my God. Like, oh, God, what were you planning to do? Uh, Yeah, that was my thought exactly. And how far were you planning to take this? Mm -hmm. In the weeks after the victim's remains were found, detectives with the Albuquerque Police Department's repeated offenders project tailed Blea for four days as he appeared to stalk sex workers on a stroll. On two separate occasions, Mr. Blea drove Central Avenue from the west part of Albuquerque to the east part. He slowed and circled the block in areas where sex workers were working. He did not approach any of the sex workers, but appeared to be closely watching them, according to one officer's written report. Ew. Yeah, that definitely sounds like he's up to no good, because if he was just out looking for their services, he would not be stalking them. He'd be talking to them. So the fact that he's just driving around eyeballing them, (laughs) that is very, Mm. it's just giving me some really nasty vibes. Additionally, officers interviewed a sex worker that knew Blea, and she recalls that he'd taken her to his house once and tried to tie her up but she wouldn't let him. About eight months later, after the West Mesa investigation began, detectives were able to search Balea's home and collected many things, primarily women's underwear and jewelry that, according to Cheryl Balea, his current wife, although I highly doubt they are still together now, didn't belong to her or her daughter. In addition, according to Cheryl's daughter, she had found a large amount of women's underwear hidden in a shed behind the house. In a 2015 interview with Albuquerque Journal, Robert Cloven stated that some of the families had noticed that women's jewelry had been missing. Unfortunately, due to this being an ongoing investigation, detectives are unwilling to disclose if any of the jewelry or underwear found at Blea's home Match DNA linked to our known victims. Yeah, that's what I was wondering is if any of it related to the victims or if he's just some sicko who is stealing garments and jewelry from other women. Yeah. (laughs) Either way, I don't like it. I don't like it either. Detectives also took the time to interview Monroe Elderts, Blea's former cellmate. And Elderts said that... Blea had told him that he'd known some of the victims and paid them for sexual acts. Eldert stated that Mr. Blea spoke poorly about other identified victims, calling them trashy. Blea told Eldert he hit one of the victims when she tried to take his money. 
This investigation did lead detectives to other alleged crimes Blea committed, including the sexual assault of a young woman who he repeatedly raped at the age of 14, including oh once with a screwdriver. Holy However, his charges were later dropped. That pisses me off. That pisses me off to no end that he could get away with that shit. That is, that's absolutely ridiculous. From what I could find, it was one of those cases that the victim did not want to talk about it in front of a court. I can't blame her with what she went through. Mm Jeez. And unfortunately, there are some states out there that they don't prosecute from the state. It's prosecution from the victim. So, yeah. Unfortunately, if the victim backs out, the case is dropped. It shouldn't Mm -hmm. be that way, but it is. Yeah. In the year of 2015, Blea was sentenced to 36 years by a district court judge. Police say the victim of Blea's was a eighth grade girl. She was attacked by a masked man in her home after school. Her rape kit was not tested until 2010, which ultimately led investigators to Blea. Just before the sentence was handed down, the judge stated, in all honesty, Mr. Blea, you took her life away. They're so young. Like I'm just processing that of just how Mm -hmm. young these girls are that he's going after. Since this, Blea has been accused and convicted of other rapes dating as far back as 1980. Wow. And in the 1990s, near McKinley Middle School, the police say that Blea had a long history of sexually assaulting women, calling him a monster. During Blea's attacks, he typically wore a ski mask and was armed with a knife. After the rapes, he'd steal the victim's underwear He was named the McKinley Middle School Rapist. And as of right now, from what I can find, Balea has been sentenced to 90 years in prison for sexual assaults on four victims and is currently attempting to appeal those convictions. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, convicted on four counts. It sounds like he did way more than that. Mm -hmm. (sighs) According to Balea's former attorney, John McCall, police investigated Blea in connection to the West Mason murders, but Blea has stated that he had nothing to do with them. There is evidence against Blea in a case of a sex worker who was killed and dumped off of East Central in the late 80s with DNA found on her jeans that apparently linked back to Blea. Uh, yeah, definitely seems like a lot of coincidences lining up if it is not him who did it. Mm -hmm. Another name that came across police's radar was Lorenzo Montoya, who had a long history with violence against women. Montoya was involved in a case prior to the discovery of the remains in the West Mesa. Sharika Hall, a 19-year-old sex worker that Montoya met in an online chat room. They scheduled to meet, and on the way, Hill picked up her boyfriend, a man named Frederick Williams, who some speculate may have also been her pimp, before heading to Lorenzo's trailer park home. Frederick stayed outside in the car while Sharika went in to meet with Montoya, who was unaware that Frederick had even come along at all. After about an hour of waiting for Sharika to come back out of the home, Frederick started to become concerned and went to investigate. 
When he turned a corner, he noticed that Montoya was leaving his home with something hoisted over his shoulder. It appeared to be a body wrapped in a comforter, and he was preparing to load it into the trunk of his car. Holy shit. At this point, a confrontation ensues, and a 911 call is made with reports of shots being fired, and that one of the individuals was down. Montoya was killed at this time, and Sharika's body was found by Frederick. According to the police, Sharika had been tied with rope made out of duct tape and rolled into a comforter. In addition to this, I believe it's the Dateline episode, Somebody's Daughter, or it might have been the Investigation Discovery episode that's listed in my references, The Lost Girls of the Mesa, that discusses how Montoya had been seen days prior to this murder purchasing new sheets and comforters from a store nearby. Uh. Authorities now speculate that he had committed murders previous to Sharika, and as early as 2006, they were discussing how this individual may have been a bigger murderer as he was prepared and willing to dispose of bodies of sex workers. Yeah, it definitely seemed like he had thought it through what he was going to do in the case of, uh, I apologize if I mispronounced her name, but Sharika, Mm -hmm. Sharika, that, I mean, rope made out of duct tape, that definitely seems like he already had a plan in place, which doesn't necessarily mean he's done it before, but it definitely seems like it was well thought out, which I feel like from what we've talked about before, generally if it's their first time, it doesn't go that well. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, mm, that's very, very well prepared, especially like if he hasn't done this before and if he's coming out of the house and just putting the body into the car, like it's willy nilly and nothing's happening. Like, Oh yeah. That makes me feel like, okay, you're cool and you're calculated about this. You've done this before. Yeah. It seems like there was zero nerves about being caught. If he just had the, the body over his shoulder and was just flinging it into the back of the, truck that does not seem concerned at all if somebody's watching this happen or like any sort of nerves of about what he just did mm-hmm. furthermore Montoya lived about two miles from the dig site oh wow and back in 2006 there were dirt trails that led directly from Montoya's mobile home to part of the dig site Ooh, I don't like that So, similar to other cases that we've discussed, as time goes on, the story progresses through many forums of news media, and there have been rumors that have spiraled as a result. So, one of these rumors was that Michelle, Cinnamon, Victoria, and Julie all possibly knew each other and may have been friends at some point. This rumor isn't entirely unfounded as the girls were active in the same area during the same time span, and police also believe that this might be true. Another rumor is that there's possibly more than one killer, or that the murders were done by a gang that enlisted the women's help with drug trafficking throughout the area. Police at the time do not believe that the murders had anything to do with drug trafficking and that there is only one killer responsible for the women's murders. Yeah, it seems to me if it was more than one killer, 
it would seem odd to have the exact same dump site for two unrelated killers unless they were working together. Mm-hmm. So again, that would kind of go along with the gang idea. But yeah, other two completely unrelated killers, so it wouldn't make sense with how big the mace is that the bodies would be be dumped in exactly the same spot. Yeah, which I mean, we've talked about team killers before, and it's not entirely like unfounded to think that there are two killers that are like working together and dumping bodies in the same location. And you just think that it's one person because their kill styles Mm -hmm. are so similar. Like I'm pretty sure there have been cases where it's like, Oh, this is only one killer. And then it's like, Oh wait, it is a couple doing this. What the hell? Yeah. So (laughs) it's not entirely unfounded, but it is a rumor at this time. It's unsure. There's also a rumor that implicates police involvement. According to Michelle's mother, Karen Cladwell, she was afraid of somebody within the police department that would take the girls out to the west side where he would rape them and force them to do whatever he wanted them to do. And additionally to this, Julie's mother, Eleanor, also notes that Julie was afraid of this officer as well. And this individual was going by the name of David or Dave. Hmm. Ray Schultz does mention how there was internal investigations done for the family members that believed that an officer may have been involved. However, no officer was found. And additionally, Ray doesn't know any officers that could be using the name Dave or David at the time that this was occurring. If it was a pseudonym, I'm sure that the officer wouldn't be going around using it with the other officers, though. Yeah, or even, like, an alias, too. Yes, yeah, yeah. Now, we've talked about this before, but Ray does also mention that it's not uncommon for people with malevolent intent to claim to be police officers. That's true. Getting a fake badge, uh, fake uniform, maybe a top light for their car... Yeah, and if they are aware that these sex workers may already be uncomfortable with law enforcement for obvious reasons, that they could use that to gain power over them potentially and Mm -hmm. try to uh, pressure them into doing these things by, I would presume, by threatening to arrest them or take law enforcement action as a police officer against them if they didn't do what he wanted. Yeah, absolutely. So, in addition to this, law enforcement has also looked outside of Albuquerque, New Mexico, and even the United States to find possible leads to suspects. To quote, looking at victims border to border to see if any have any type of relation, end quote. Another theory that emerged was that 300 miles south of Albuquerque is one of the world's most dangerous cities. A border town named, and I apologize if I butcher this name, I already know I'm going to, Ciudad Juarez. The city alone has over 300 women that have been found dead. And it has one of the highest murder per capita rates in the world. Oh my god. Police have looked into the relations with the victims in the city of Albuquerque and the women found dead in Ciudad Juarez. 
and they found that these women fell into a similar category of drug addicts and sex workers. Now, it was implied that there may have been a killer that was working in both areas. However, while the similarities are eerie, this rumor can unfortunately be narrowed to the fact that there is a very sinister population out there that preys upon individuals in vulnerable positions. Yeah, it made me think of, uh, I believe the terminology you've used is less than dead, if mm-hmm. I remember correctly, uh, that sex workers fall into that, as you've discussed before, and that especially if it sounds like that is a very dangerous town to be in, I'm sure that it's quite possible to have different killers in that town also preying upon this population um, rather than the same killer traveling back and forth. Yeah, the term less than dead absolutely comes up a lot when I was looking through this case and like, not necessarily like in the research itself, but just in the back of my mind, because we've obviously talked about it before. And it's one of those things that Edgar's really hit it right on the head when he defined it. Like there are people out there that are in vulnerable positions and they regularly happen to be sex workers, children, minority groups, and anyone that's just basically in a position that they can be taken advantage of very quickly. And unfortunately, serial killers know this and they go after those types of people. They're the people that by media standards are less likely to be reported and are not as newsworthy as others. So many of the victims' families are torn between what to believe and left wondering what happened. Karen Cladwell, Michelle's mother, hopes that Montoya was the individual that perpetrated this, just so that there's not a killer still out there doing this to other girls. Yeah, seriously. That did make me think of uh, one question in regards to Montoya specifically. It sounds like these remains have been there for a long time, so I don't know if it would have been possible, but I was wondering, did they find any trace? Well, I guess you already said that the publicly released information didn't say anything about it, but I was wondering, Mm -hmm. could there have been any traces of potential, like, the comforter or the tape, if that was kind of his M.O., or would that have degraded by this point based on how old the remains were? So one of the things that really, really pissed me off with the early media coverage of this and something that I wasn't really sure where to fit this into, but I guess we'll talk about it here. They disclosed that most of these bodies had been found naked when buried. Okay. So obviously if there were any traces of a comforter or if the comforter was being buried with these victims, likely the, depending on the comforter being like a more inorganic material, it's not going to decompose as fast, similar to how clothing would still be on these victims as well. Yeah. Okay. Being as, depending on how many, well, actually, I'm trying to think a little bit more on this because that is a very good question. Because you could see breakdown with fabric with, a decay process but obviously some of that fabric will still be around yeah that's what i was thinking if there had been traces of comfort especially since if it had been him all along i imagine all the victims mm-hmm. probably would have been buried in a comforter or at least most of them it would be strange i feel like to not find any remnants of that unless like i said unless the 
Barely all of the victims had been a long, long time ago, but it didn't seem like that much time had passed that all of that fabric would have decayed. But yeah. I mean, I don't know. I definitely <laughs> do not specialize in any of that, so I'm not sure exactly how long it would take uh, for fabric to decay all the way, but I imagine it probably would have taken longer than that. Yeah, and obviously there is studies done on this, but one of the biggest factors that I think hinders, like, the studies for decomp is that there's really nothing going on for decomp studies as far as like the southwestern areas or the desert mm-hmm. regions because like I think it was my group that tried to start one over at the ASU campus and we got declined immediately but this is something that really does need to happen because we just don't fully understand or know what to expect when it comes to dealing with remains in a desert area. Yeah. So, on the flip side of that, Eleanor Nieto, Julie's mother, does not want to pin the blame on somebody and have the killer possibly still be out there. Unfortunately, as the years go on, tips start to slow, as well as any progress in the case. And the police department is forced to scale back their task force for the investigation. Where there originally were dozens of people working on this case, there is now only one full-time detective. Uh. Chief Schultz did move to another department in 2013. And in 2014, Ida Lopez retired from the police department. The media coverage on this case has long since left the town and... The last public statement that was given was in 2022, and it was a anniversary statement for the 13th anniversary of the discovery of the remains in the West Mesa. Police investigators and city officials stated that their only way of solving this case is going to be with the community's help or even communities around us that might know something. We need new information on this case that is what's going to lead it to being solved. During this public statement, rumors were also dispelled regarding the investigation being shut down. This investigation is still open and active, and investigators are still looking for the perpetrator. Homicide detective Liz Thompson is now leading the investigation and working on the case regularly and has dispelled rumors regarding Montoya and Blea being the only two suspects, stating, We have eliminated many suspects. At this time, there are a number of people being investigated as persons of interest. A dynamic number. More than two and more than a few. Well, I'm glad to hear at least that it sounds like... I don't want to say they have leads, because that's not what I'm trying to say, but that they're they're still actively investigating it. Mm-hmm. And that there there's still is a chance... That they may be able to figure out who did this. Yeah. Tips continue to come in nearly every week, charting close to over 1,200 tips in this case in total. Wow. Thompson also notes that this individual may be charming or friendly in order to get trust or build trust in even a relationship with these women first. 
It's also additionally theorized that the housing boom in 2005 may have caused this individual to abandon this dumping ground in favor for a new location where nobody would be around to watch them work. In June of 2020, the city of Albuquerque opened a long-awaited park at the burial site, memorializing the victims of the West Mason murders. One of the reasons it took so long to open was absolutely infuriating, but land concerns. Land value land concerns. concerns. Land oh, value oh, concerns. Okay, okay. I mean, I feel like that bridge has already been crossed. There's been plenty of public media attention of what has happened on this land, mm-hmm. so I'm sorry. I, I don't think there's any turning back now from that. <laughs> like, like, stop losing your shit over this and get over it. We're too far past that point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Additionally, what's made this case so hard to be solved was lack of evidence to begin with, and the families believe that the underreporting and the initial days of the girls' disappearances were highly highly reasons why things did not go as smoothly as they should have. Oh yeah. 16 women missing and not a single news station picked up the story. Not even a local TV station. It wasn't until the bodies were found that they became national news, but the girls still weren't focused on. They were derogatorily named and they were put down and the interest was on the possibility of a serial killer. Yeah, I feel like especially with serial killers, it turns into this excitement and drama aspect of the serial Mm -hmm. killer being focused on more than the victims themselves. Absolutely. And like I said in the previous episode, a lot of those articles are gone now. Yeah. So finding any information on this really feels like it's a second source to find and it's really weeding out where things match up and where things don't. Mm. So 10 of the missing women on Ida Lopez's list were identified, but unfortunately there are still at least six other individuals who were published in the Albuquerque Tribune in 2007 to still be missing. Now, if you go looking for this, you're also going to find another article that has to do with the Dateline episode, and there's a couple other girls on that list. The girls on that list that are different from the girls on this list seem to either have their cases, like, closed or have, from what I can understand, kind of been ruled out since there's, a, like, at least two of those three girls that are not on this list that no longer have nameless profiles. So I have no idea what's going on there. Oh, okay. Yeah, hopefully it means their cases were solved and they got answers. My hope it's one of the printings that Ida was able to go through on her list and they were able to be excluded. I'm hoping that's what happened. Yeah. However, the 2007 list, we're going to go through the names on there because all of those women are still missing to this day. And Ida believed that they were in connection with what was going on. Mm. So the first one is Darlene Trujillo, who disappeared on July 5th of 2001. Darlene was last seen in Albuquerque, New Mexico on July 4th after she dropped her young son off at his grandmother's residence near 11th Street 
and Northwest Headingley Avenue. She asked her to watch him while she took a two-day trip to Arizona. Darlene was accompanied by a Hispanic male at the time of her disappearance, and he has been publicly identified as George. Darlene never returned to Albuquerque, and after a week, she was reported missing by her aunt. Weeks after that, George returned to Albuquerque alone and told Darlene's aunt that he and Darlene did not go to Arizona, but to Tucumcari, New Mexico. George states that they had a fight. Darlene left the car. They were driving, and he never saw her again. George is wanted for questioning by the police, and Darlene's family states that she was separated from her son's father at the time she went missing, and it is uncharacteristic of her to abandon the child. The next one is Anna Vigil, who disappeared in January of 2005. She was last seen in Albuquerque, New Mexico sometime during 2005, but has never been seen or heard from again. Anna is one of a dozen women who are reported missing in Albuquerque since 2001. She was believed to be involved in drugs as well as sex work. The next one is Felipe Gonzalez, who was last seen in Albuquerque, New Mexico in May of 2005. She has not been heard from since. Felipe was recently released from jail, and at the time of her disappearance, she was struggling with drug addiction as well as depression. Nina Hernan was last seen at approximately 5 p.m. on May 14th of 2005 at her residence in the vicinity of the 8,000th block in central northeastern Albuquerque, New Mexico. So, the war zone. Uh, okay. She has not been seen or heard from since. She was struggling with drug addiction and was also working as a sex worker in the area. Chantel Waits was last seen in Albuquerque, New Mexico during January of 2006 and has not been seen or heard since. She is one of over a dozen women reported missing in Albuquerque since 2001. Leah Pebbles was last seen on May 22nd of 2006. She moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico with hopes of starting a new life and breaking free from addiction. She disappeared a few weeks later. Leah was last seen dropping her car off at a transmission shop in the area known for drugs and sex work, I'm presuming, once again, the war zone. It is currently unknown if Leah left Albuquerque or if she was met with foul play. There has not been any known police contact with Leah to be able to confirm or deny these theories. It's important to remember that all these people, like I say at the top of every episode, they are real people with families and friends that are still widely suffering with their loss and just want answers. And everyone in this story has value regardless of their lifestyle. Oh, yeah. Many of these women have families waiting on them, including children. And many have simply been down on their luck. Definitely. For sure. These women, in a lot of cases, just needed help. Like you said, they were down on their luck. They were in a bad position. And they're trying to support their family. So they, they needed help. They didn't need to be put 
in jail or be facing off with a murderer, evidently. Mm-hmm. But yes, that regardless, like you said, regardless of their lifestyle, all these women should be valued and their stories need to be told. It doesn't matter what their lifestyle was. They shouldn't be swept under the rug like it didn't matter what happened to them. Like Katie said, they have families who are still looking for answers, who are still mourning this loss, who still don't even know what happened to them. And so we really need to get the word out. And we really hope that this reaches some folks who are either out in New Mexico now or have spent some time out there and may have some more answers to help these cases get get solved or get some leads, get more information out there to try to get some answers for these families. Absolutely. And I think I stated in the first episode, in Ida follows the same theory, it is everybody or nobody. And that means yes. every single case gets the same treatment or none of them do. Mm-hmm. Definitely. With that... If you have any information regarding the West Mesa Bone Collector case, you are asked to call 505-768-2450 or Crime Stoppers at 505-843-STOP. All right. Well, thank you for all the information. It was a rough case to listen to. But it's like I said, it's important that we tell these stories. It is very important to get the word out. And if anyone is living in New Mexico or has any friends or family in New Mexico, please take a moment and share this with them. See if they might know anything. And if they do, please talk to authorities about this. These people deserve answers. Thank you again for listening to Haunting Cases Podcast. Please make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Haunting Cases Podcast and on Twitter at Haunting Cases. If you have a listener tale, story request, or any questions, email us at hauntingcasespodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to rate us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. So, what do you say, listeners? Are you haunted too?